and welcome to another edition of Clear and Present, where we try to address, if not tackle, and certainly in some cases resolve, key issues at that forefront of intersection between science, technology, biosecurity, and biodefense on the 21st century and ever-changing global stage. Today, I'm pleased to welcome a longstanding colleague and friend of mine, Mr. Pat Scannell. Uh, he is probably best defined as, as a responsible technologist. Uh, he serves as senior fellow in the Global Vanguards Institute, which is a progressive think tank dedicated to addressing issues of applying and analyzing technology for the relative benefits of humanity on the global stage, both in and across human cultures. Pat, welcome aboard. Hey, good morning, and I'm always looking forward to conversations with you, Gene. It's always fun. You know, let, let's jump right into it, because I think for many of our listeners, the idea of what responsible technology means takes on a whole bunch of different connotations and denotations based upon the facet of the lens through which one works. I mean, in, in your writings and many of your talks, you've discussed that accelerating technology has, and if I can quote you, disrupted the fabric of human thought. And let's face it, in this age of numerous existential threats from those that are natural vis-a-vis -vis things that happen in the environment and those that are human-induced, inclusive of things that happen in the environment, case in point, climate change, recent pandemics, this is most important issue perhaps facing humanity is, is our role in our future. But those are bold and sometimes arguably hyperbolic claims, and bold claims require evidence. Can you substantiate those claims? Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I say them humbly, but after 10 years of research into, uh, you know, I'm a technologist. I've been studying why we uh, adopt technology the way we do and how technology serves us. And so that, that interchange between technology and cognition, and I did a very deep dive into that. And I backed into some conclusions. Really, I was just looking to take a short sabbatical and read a few books, but I never found the answers I was looking for. Um, and as I kept digging deeper and deeper, I realized that uh, cognition is a very complex thing. It's not something that just occurs in the brain. Even within the body, it, 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 it's, a, it's an embodied experience. But modern cognition is actually a function of, uh, I would argue, three different uh, layers. The, the, uh, this is a simplified, uh, sim the simplified word for this is extended cognition, which is it occurs within your brain, but it also occurs culturally, and then it occurs materially. So the idea that uh, I'm writing some notes here in front of me uh, is an extended part of my long-term memory. The fact that you and I are using words, those are socially uh, and culturally constructed, and those shape how we think. So these three planes, biological, cultural, and material, uh, when I take a very, very deep look, looking back millions of years, and I, and I speed up to the, 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 future, to the current present, particularly the last 100 years, and I'd say most particularly the last 20, Every single one of those planes is being disrupted. And I, and I can easily point to the data points, right? We've doubled lifespan. If you did that to a species of ape, that would have had an effect on its ecosystem and its cognition and, and, and other things. Uh, culturally, we have had, uh, let's start with some positives. We've had a massive infusion of human rights that has uh, upset uh, longstanding cultural uh, uh, power structures. And so for the people who are gaining those rights, so whether they be women, people of color, people of various genders and, and, and sexual preferences, um, that's a win. But for the people in, uh, in, uh, in previous 
traditional power structures, this is a, a bit of a blow and a little bit of a loss. And then uh, materially, it's really hard not to, to agree with the point that, uh, you know, these days, not only do we not have to remember our spouse's phone number, but we barely have to remember a book. We can go to ChatGPT and have it summarize it for us. Um, so I'm not just a ChatGPT has changed the world. If you look at whether it's the foods we eat, how we move, uh, how we have sex, how we reproduce, any of those basic biological markers uh, of, of an animal's uh, culture and cognition and behavior, uh, they've been massively disrupted in the last 100, 150 years. And as a result, I think that literally the fabric of how we think is being rendered in such a way that it leaves us disoriented and and we've done it to ourselves. We've created these new technologies because we thought we needed them. Um, so it's a problem and a situation of our own making, but I believe that it, it's tremendous opportunity for us to build technologies that help us to think better and solve problems. But the reason I think this is the most important problem facing humanity is, is I'm not arguing this is more important than climate change. I am arguing that it is root cause for many of the social issues that we, we wrestle with, uh, whether it's in national defense or in uh, just popular circles. Uh, the January 6th uprising, the rise of populist movements, I believe these are all stemming back to essentially whiplash from so much change so quickly. Uh, folks like Alul and Toffler and uh, and many others saw this coming, you know, 50, 70 years ago, and now we're, we're bearing the fruit of that. So this disruption of thought uh, at all three layers uh, creates root cause for issues that other people are trying to solve in other ways. Uh, Case and Deaton wrote a great book called Deaths of Despair, and they point to <clears throat> pharmaceutical and federal regulatory policies uh, causing a, an increase in the opioid uh, epidemic that uh, for the first time in Really, ever since World War One, we've had a decline in U.S. life expectancy. If that's not a biosecurity issue, I don't know what is. But they're claiming it's a pharmaceutical regulatory, you know, federal policy issue. I'm claiming that deaths of despair, which happened predominantly in, I'll colloquially call, flyover states to men of my age, white, um, who found themselves rudderless, and opioids uh, is, a, is a great salvation to that. So this root cause is uh, important, but it also, and I'll stop here, the disruption of thought erodes our ability to collaborate on the other existential threats that we face in the Anthropocene, whether it's climate change or uh, you know, Russia or, or, or what have you. So I really believe, and, and I've tried to make this case in a number of forums, that while we all experience catastrophe fatigue from all the issues facing us today, I think that bringing a new one to the forefront is an important part of the conversation because it helps us start looking holistically at problems, looking at root cause, and looking at the things that uh, either prevent us or scaffold us in better uh, dealing with some of those other existential threats. This is you know, there's there's a lot to unpack there for sure. I mean. Some of the, the constructs that you're discussing have been those that have been in the forefront of, of not only our work, our research group, but, but certainly those with whom we collaborate. I mean, the, the running argument is that we are embrained organisms and our brains are embodied, certainly the extent of embodied cognition, but that our bodies and those embrained natures of our bodies are embedded and nested in with our spatiotemporal cultures. And of course, the things that happen in that cultural milieu in those environments, our ecology, so to speak, then feed back upon our bodies and our brains. And so the arrows go both ways. Throwing technology, or at least throwing techne 
tools, whether or not those are logically accounted for and how those are logically accounted for into the mix, it very much speaks to some of the, the work of Merle and Donald. And you and I are both big yep. fans of, of Professor Donald's work about the, the current epoch being one of technological cognition. But I think the issue there then sort of takes an additional jump. If indeed that level of techne affects logos, in other words, if the tools that we're creating are both the instruments of and the influence upon our cognition, our, our rational accounting of ourselves and what we are, then we have to begin to consider some of the work of thinkers like Hans Lenk and Hans Jonas, who warned of some of the aspects of techne absent logos. And I think this is a very real issue. But the other aspect of this, in other words, if we look at this as, as a sword necessary to defend, if you will, ourselves against the products of our own invention, is that there are some that look at this and the way we use our tools, inclusive of the way we analyze them, as the sort of perseverability of our own prestidigitation. That's a mouthful. In other words, it's our own sort of, it's humanity's magic flight of hands, show of hands, and behind the curtain really is just us, Oz. You know, interestingly, if I recall, last year you, you gave a really cool talk called The Return of Magic. And as, as I noted, and that was a talk that you gave across a number of fora. I mean, not only European Association of Archaeology, and then here at, at the IEEE, I mean, similar with regard to the idea of science, but also with regard to national security and defense at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. So I guess the question here is, there's a reach. I mean, I get it. You know, our reach should exceed our grasp. But is there are those who might criticize this as perhaps a bridge too far, uh, a little bit too much reach without enough grasp? Or is that your criticism? In fact, we're not grasping what it is we're doing and we're reaching too far. Over to you. What do you think? Uh, I just need a second. I'm looking up what prestidigitation means. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I need to keep a dictionary when I'm hanging out with you. Um, you know, that, that that's not my quote. That's an Ed Pellegrino uh, quote. I mean, that is his whole idea was that there's sort of, we, we, we fool ourselves by our own magic. We sort of make up our own stories and believe them. Well, it's funny because, you know, you bring up techni and, you know, I want to get into my definitions of technology because I have several and I use the words differently and, and, and specifically. But, you know, when you're talking about the, the two Hanses and, uh, you know, a, a simpler way to say that uh, Langdon Winner said, uh, we're essentially sleepwalking into our future. We are pursuing technology innovation. Uh, I mean, I say it all the time, uh, whether it's in the industry trade regs or uh, just on ads, right? Uh, we have AI hire us, use AI to innovate and disrupt. Towards what, right? So whether you're Raytheon or the local uh, flower shop that's touting their AI uh, delivery service, we, we do so much. Uh, my day job is to commercialize technology. That's what I get paid to do. And I'm pretty good at 5G, AI, and some other things. But we never pause to think about the effects of that. And, and with good reason. The, the, the return of magic is um, a talk that's uh, come out of some conversations I've had with a few authors about <clears throat> uh, how complicated our time is and how we respond to that through hyper-specialization. So Sam Arbsman wrote a book called... Uh, uh, overcomplicated, and uh, there's another great book out there called Too Big to Know. Th these ideas are so big uh, that they've exceeded our ability to understand. Uh, uh, 
another argument that Langdon Winner and some others have made is that we live in a world that's too complicated to understand and it's outside of our control. I believe we are in control. I think as innovators, whenever we build technology, it's unforeseeable all the ways it can be used, but it's unforgivable for us to build this technology without any consideration of how it's going to be used. And I'm not pointing a finger at uh, in uh, inhumane technologies and surveillance companies. That's a, that's a problem that's being addressed by other folks, right? Uh, you're at Facebook, you created social media, you didn't realize the effect it was going to have on an election. But the fact that we don't spend any time on this, I think is, is, is our undoing. So I, I, that's why I said I'm, I try to consider myself humbly just a responsible technologist. I really don't want to do this work. There's no incentive to do the work. I'm not going to gain a degree or, or uh, advance my career. In fact, it's just the opposite. I only know of two people who are focused on this topic in the world. It's Carl Pabo, uh, a renowned geneticist, and myself. He's been doing it for 20 years. I've been doing it for 10. And really, people don't want to hear about the issues that we're explaining. And um, and. That's because the system isn't set up for people raising more issues. People want solutions being brought to the table to discrete problems that have already been prioritized, climate change and others. Um, I fear I'm, I'm straying from your, your, your question, but my, the point of when I talk about things like the return of magic, how is that practical and applied in today's world? Well, when I talk to... APL or the technologists in Silicon Valley, for them it's very applied because I can say, you guys, me, us that make technology have a responsibility. When we're wondering what the world our children's going to grow up in, literally, like how are my 18 and 20 year old going to uh, think and act and behave in 10 or 15 years, it's going to be a direct result of the stuff that I've created. So when I talk about, I open the return of magic talk usually with a a hidden camera magician who, uh, in this case, shows a, uh, he's in a big box retailer, he has a refrigerator, he opens up the refrigerator, and the guy's like, oh, this is really neat, it's a small one, like a dorm fridge, and he closes it, and he pushes a few buttons on the top, and he opens it, and the food that he pushed the buttons on are inside, and when the guy seems, like, really puzzled, he explains it's cloud and nanotechnologies, and the guy goes, oh, this is great, this will be great for my 90-year-old mom, that's what we're doing every day. A friend of mine uh, was head of product at Apple. He created the iPhone. I created, I was a part of a cog in the wheel of creating 5G. When we make this technology, we're making stuff that people hold in their hand and act as if it's magic. Uh, and if they don't recognize that, then they're just not being honest with themselves. But things that are magic are things that are not understood and to be feared. And when used can have, um, you know, the sorcerer and its apprentice uh, kind of unintended consequences. So there's a lot of responsibility in weaving this magic. And if that seems a little too abstract to people, then I, I'd suggest that um, the alternative is falling back into meeting the standard incentives that your employer asks you to do, that the market's asking for. People don't have the attention span to understand these bigger issues. But if we can pause and take a step back and consider these unintended consequences and these other dynamics, it may give us the chance to create better technologies, to create new markets, to speak to people about different things and different value propositions, educate the marketplace, and, and foster a different kind of success in the world other than the one that we're traditionally um, following because it's how the person above us got hired. It's how our colleagues advance in their career. I think without taking a pause to consider those bigger issues, uh, we risk just being a part of the problem and, and creating a flywheel that our children and uh, even us won't escape. Did that make any sense at all? 
That made a lot of sense. So let me play devil's advocate, if I may. Uh, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, you and I have argued for the same things in our lectures and our writings over the years, which is basically how we got to know each other. But, you know, looming out there is this thing called the Colling Ridge Dilemma. In other words, you won't know until you go. And there has been the argument, and many, me included, have made the argument that a lot of the discourse that is generated about these types of issues tends to be somewhat exaggerated, ampliative, and in so doing, almost performative. In other words, people are making work for themselves for hypothetical problems versus those real problems, and the real problems don't occur until the cat is proverbially out of the bag. But I think that there's something to be said about modeling and gaming and forecasting potential real problems that can occur over these vistas of, of our future. In other words, what is most probable, the possibilities that arise therefrom, and then the potentials that are a little more sort of long-lasting. And I think to, to do that requires some, some interesting constructs and some interesting practices. You've kicked off an organization this year that I, I find very interesting, uh, the Future of Thought Consortium. And just by its just by its title, I mean, I think titularly, I would imagine that would speak to these kind of issues. Tell our listeners about. Yeah, that. yeah. Well, first of all, I, I was surprised when I did some market research on this. If you Google anything, there's a future of. There's certainly a future of uh, my industry's five G. So there's a six G future of six G group. Uh, there's a future of war, future of sex, future of basket weaving. There's literally a future of everything. There's not a future of thought organization that I've, I've been able to find. And what I found in my work is that um, the stakeholders in how we think, I mean, first of all, it's seen as this big, massive, existential, fixed thing that we can't touch. People think you can't influence that. Now, let's leave aside the fact that people are making billions of dollars influencing exactly that, whether it's advertising, social media, whatever. But the idea that uh, thought might be plastic and something that we could build and construct is is what I tried to put forth with the Future of Thought Consortium and bring together the different stakeholders, whether they're in the technology space, in the cognitive sciences. And, and I had you on a, a call uh, a year or two ago where I had cognitive scientists. One of them was a prehistoric archaeologist. <laughs> one was a social worker. One was a, uh, a clinical psychologist, uh, your background, uh, and a couple of neuroscientists who are wet lab neuron people. Just within cognitive sciences, <laughs> you can have six people on a call that have completely different vernaculars and, and conversations and, and priorities. So bringing together those different cognitive scientists plus the technologists who influence this, but other stakeholders like... Uh, national defense, education, and others, uh, I, I believe that if, if I cut my arm off, you and I could sit down and we call three or four of our friends and figure out how to build a, an arm. And we wouldn't be uh, limited to the number of digits I have or the, the feel of the skin. We'd say, hey, what could we replace this with? What, maybe it's something modular or something that has all these different features. We would have no problem doing that. And we wouldn't think twice about that. But and we certainly don't have a problem either as technologists getting paid to influence thought or as consumers sitting down and let technology wash over us and influence our thoughts, whether it's in front of the television or in front of our phone or, or what have you. I would argue in front of our microwave as well. When the microwave gives us time back in the day, what do we do with that time? So when I say technology, I mean the whole market basket of technologies. So since I believe thought is plastic and, and moldable, why not bring together people to 
do this audacious thing of thinking about how might we build thought uh, for the future if we could do it intentionally. Now, we're not going to get this right. I, I, I'm not familiar with the Colin uh, Ridge dilemma, but you know, I, I hear a lot of it's scary when you look at the prior scholarship in, in this area, whether it's Alul or, or, or Winner or Mumford or you know, even, like I said, Keynes and Churchill all foresaw this coming, but none of them really had practical suggestions to it. This idea that we should just unplug from technology. I'm walking around with two uh, phones uh, equal to supercomputers, uh, the best supercomputer in the world, 1996 and 1997. This one might be 1998. How can I not use technology like that, which has increasing access to most of the world's information, uh, often which for free, and real-time connectivity to people like you and people I've never met before that I work with in these different think tanks virtually, how can I not leverage that to think better and think different? Now, that's for myself, but how might we use that technology to bring people together to think about how we might use these technologies scaled out to the masses. And uh, what we're missing is the blueprint, the blueprint for which this technology can lead to more widespread human flourishing. What we have is a bunch of accidents, uh, a bunch of people trying to produce technology for innovation's sake, pushing it out to us. We adopt it because we have fear of missing out. Our friend adopted it. And we haven't thought through the consequences of this. Some of it leaves us a little bit better off, some of it worse off. I would argue we're generally left better off objectively by technology that we adopt, but subjectively we're worse off. Uh, we could we can dig into that uh, at another time perhaps, but this it's not all bad, like the critics would say, and it's not all good like the techno utopians would have. It's more nuanced than that, and that's just being practical. But to figure out that roadmap, you're not going to see some one person some white guy in Virginia sits down and writes a book and says, here's the blueprint. Uh, we need to bring people together from all over the, the, the world, from all walks of life, from all these different spaces, but also, you know, we need to have kids who are going to be affected here, empowered to be part of the, the conversation and sitting down with heads of national defense and the guy who created the iPhone. That's the big tent that we're going to need to figure out this roadmap, I believe. And then that roadmap will, of course, uh, make lots of mistakes, uh, which is perhaps this Colin Ridge dilemma solution, which is, yeah, we're going to fail, but we're at least intentionally saying our goal is to think better in ways that leave us better off around the values that we choose and create a blueprint together with all of the impacted stakeholders that scales out as a movement that technology can be used not as something to be afraid of and unplugged from, but that can leave us better off. And right now, I think we're doing it more sleepwalking into the future, adopting things as they come along, innovating where we uh, we can opportunistically. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I mean, I think that's a good note for us to leave off on. It's an optimistic note that's grounded upon a very pragmatic and prudent view of what we need to do as the creators of the tools that we feel that we need or we may want, but certainly that we've not only already made, but those we intend to make. Pat Scannell, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, is there an email where they can contact you? Yeah, yeah. You? I'm uh, just a standard Gmail guy. So uh, PS12946. That's Paul Sam12946 at Gmail. Always looking to collaborate, exchange ideas. I've got four books uh, sitting here on my desk that are in various stages of publication. If anybody's interested in uh, looking at them, they uh, 
They look either deeply into the human past or the primate past, even at how cognition evolved. Uh, this idea of the disruption of thought that I, we mentioned at the beginning of the calls, its own manuscript. And then I, I referred obliquely to uh, the great irony of technology, that technology generally leaves us better off objectively, but worse off subjectively. Those are four different books that if anybody's interested in critiquing, uh, I hope to be wrong on a lot of this stuff because the more I study it, the, the more the issues uh, loom large in, um, in importance. Uh, and I'm still looking for solutions. And uh, the only way I'm going to find them is by dialoguing with folks like you and your listeners. Sounds great. Well, I think that's a, about an open invitation as anyone could expect. Pat Scannell, it's always a pleasure. And to each and all of you out there, thanks so much for joining us on this yet another episode of Clear and Present. We look forward to joining you again next time. Until then, stay on board, stay safe. Thanks to our guests and to you, our audience. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us again next time for another episode of Clear and Present.